I'm reading from Mark 15 today, um, starting with uh, verses 6 through 20. Listen now for the word of God. Now at the festival, he used to release a prisoner for them, anyone whom they asked. Now a man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder during the insurrection. So the crowd came and began to ask Pilate to do for them according to his custom. And he answered them, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he realized that it was out of jealousy that the chief priest had handed him over. But the chief priest stirred up a crowd to have him release Barabbas for them instead. Pilate spoke to them again. Then what do you wish me to do with the man who you call the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, crucify him. Pilate asked them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted, all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released Barabbas for them. And after flogging Jesus, he handed them over to be crucified. Then the soldiers led him into the courtyard of the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole cohort. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And after twisting some thorns into a crown, they put it on him. And they began saluting him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck his head with a reed and spat upon him and knelt down in homage to him. After mocking him, they stripped him of his purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and then led him out to crucify him. We'll continue with... Mark 15. They compelled a passerby who was coming in from the country to carry his cross. It was Simon of Suri, the father of Alexander and Rufus. And they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his clothes among them, casting lots to decide what each should take. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two rebels, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, saying and shaking their heads, Ah, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests, along with the scribes, were also mocking him amongst themselves, saying, He has saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross now, so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also taunted him. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, listen, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a stick, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And then Jesus gave a loud cry 
and breathed his last breath. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that this is what had happened, he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. There's this strong urge, this temptation to start the sermon with a funny story or a compelling anecdote. You know, sermons, they're supposed to be uplifting and inspiring, and we all leave here feeling better. But it's Good Friday. It's somber. And it's dark. And this message is about the cross. I'm going to look at the crucifixion from a couple of different viewpoints. Let's start with the historical one because all of the elements of what's recorded in the Bible hold up with the uh, historical accuracy of those outside of Scripture. Crucifixion was a Roman form of execution, of capital punishment. Only slaves and non-Romans were executed in this way. It was horrendously agonizing It was horribly disgraceful and humiliating to be killed this way. And the Roman custom would be to force the criminal to carry their own cross to the place of of crucifixion. And they would have been placed between four soldiers. So the criminal in the middle carrying the cross and four soldiers. And then another soldier in front would have carried a sign that listed the charges against the criminal. And then when they got to the place of execution, that sign would have been affixed to the cross. The criminal was paraded on this long route, probably a circuitous route through the town, so that everybody could see and be warned not to break the law. Caesar, it's said, really liked this form of execution because it was a great deterrent to crime. But the text says that after a very cruel flogging, Jesus was beat and he was whipped. He couldn't carry the cross. He wasn't able to. And so they grabbed another man, Simon of Cyrene. This was a man from Africa who was probably in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. In fact, he probably, we don't know this, but he probably had spent his life savings one trip to the holy city to celebrate Passover there. And he has his sons, Rufus and Alexander, with him. And they grab him and they force him to carry the cross. The cross of a criminal. The cross of a despised and rejected man. Historically, the Roman soldiers would have the right to the criminal's clothing, and so the text tells us that they gambled for them. And then at the cross, at the the destination, the criminal was nailed to the cross. They would have driven spikes through their wrists and through the upper part of their feet together to hold them in place and then lifted them up 
and the criminal normally died of asphyxiation. You see, they would have to use those spikes to push themselves up so that their diaphragm could take in air. But they became weaker and weaker and less able to lift themselves up, and so they would have simply died that way. Now, when death took a really long time, or in this case, because it was the weekend, they would break the legs of the criminal so that they couldn't push themselves up anymore. They didn't break Jesus' legs because they found him to already be dead. But the record tells us that criminals on the cross were just simply left to die. A slow, painful death, starvation, thirst, asphyxiation, and the death took up to a week for them to die this way. Let's look at it then from what the scripture emphasizes and from the theological truth. There's the truth of, the, of Jesus' agony of separation from God. He quotes Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, Jesus bears all of human sin. He's fully identified with humans in the fall, in the fall of Adam, in the fall of us. Jesus has never known sin. Jesus has never been separated from God. But in this sacrifice, he pays and bears that agony. And when he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, they say, oh, he's crying for Elijah. You see, the belief was that if you were being attacked or you were under persecution and you were in great need, you could call out for Elijah and he would come and rescue the innocent and righteous one. So they thought, oh, he's calling for Elijah. Let's see if Elijah shows up here. And then this mockery. Save yourself. Come down from the cross so that we can believe you. But here's the thing. It's because Jesus did not come down from the cross that we believe in him. He had the power to come down. Don't think for a second that he couldn't have come down. He stayed by will. He stayed by his love for us. He, if he had saved himself, then he couldn't save others. And Jesus himself had said, the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. The, the paradox in their mockery just really strikes me. He saved others, but he can't save himself. But he saves others because he won't save himself. Because to come down from that cross would have said there are limits to God's love. There are just some things that God himself is just not willing to suffer. He's not going to go that far to redeem us. But to remain on the cross shows the full extent of his love for us. And then the text says that the curtain was torn. The curtain in the Holy of Holies. In, in the temple in Jerusalem, that, they believed that God lived inside that temple. And specifically, God lived in the Holy of Holies, right in the center. And there was a curtain that separated that. No person was allowed into the Holy of Holies. 
only the high priest, and he only went in once a year. And when he went in, they tied a rope around him so that in case he died while he was in there, they could drag the body out because they can't go into the Holy of Holies. They had no access to God. But in the tearing of the curtain, access to God is now open. Not just the priest, not just once a year, but all people, all of the time. God is not distant, and the sin that separates us from God has been atoned for. The mystery is out. Jesus is the full revelation of the Holy of Holies. And all people now have access to God through him. What we see in Jesus is the full extent of God, the fulfillment of everything that God has planned, and the full circle of the way that God intended to redeem humans. But then one more piece of the story. Because I see a stunning twist. And it's in the Mark account. I think it's a little more explicit in the Hebrews 9 passage. Calicia preached on this on Monday for those that were here. Here from Hebrews 9. When Christ came as the high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through a greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, it's not part of creation. He did not enter by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer that was sprinkled on those who were ceremonially unclean would sanctify them so that they were outwardly ceremonially clean. So how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself, offered himself unblemished to God, how much more will that cleanse our conscience, consciences from acts that lead to death? so that we may serve the living God. And so for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. And here's the stunning twist. The sacrificer is the sacrifice. The Old Testament system provides for a priest to offer a sacrifice, the shedding of innocent blood, they would have an innocent, uh, a young lamb. And so that price was to bring people back into relationship with God. But only the body was made clean. It was an outward cleansing. You could be ceremonially clean, symbolically clean in that system, but it was not able to address the sins of the heart who we really are. See, even with the Old Testament system, a person could be ceremonially clean, but still separated from God by a heart of sin. Blood was sprinkled and ashes were scattered, but there was no change in anyone's behavior as a result of that because it could only cleanse and change you outwardly. It couldn't change your heart. Jesus' sacrifice cleansed 
the soul. Because the sacrificer is the sacrifice. He is the offering that he offers. And this perfect sacrifice by the perfect sacrificer grants forgiveness, not only for past sins, but what it also does is it empowers us. It enables us to live our godly lives in the future. And that's the fulfillment of God's plan. That's what God has always wanted and intended. It's more than just paying a past debt. It's also giving a victory to us for the future. We're justified, forgiven, and and here's the theological term, imputed righteousness. That means God takes off his own righteousness and places it on us. I'm not righteous in myself, but I am because God has given his to me at the cross of Christ. Oh, Jesus could have stepped out of that. Don't think for a second that Jesus couldn't have stepped out of it, but he paid that price because of his love for us. And that new covenant does what the old could never do to restore us into fellowship with the creator and empower us to godly living in the future. All of history, all of the the story of the Bible from the start to the finish culminates right here. It's the pinnacle, the anchor, the key, whatever metaphor you want to use for that. That between the creation in Genesis and the new creation in Revelation, this is the key piece. Restoring what God had intended all along and what the Bible tells us will happen at the end. Jesus is the worthy one to die. All of the Old Testament pointed to it. Prophecy has been fulfilled and debts have been paid once and for all. So what is our response? Today, Good Friday, April 7, 2023, what is our response? All of our sin is forgiven because of what Jesus has done for us, what we could never do for ourselves. The curtain is torn, so we have symbolic, that symbolic that we have true access directly to the Father in a personal relationship. So what response is there other than to pray, to ask for forgiveness, to invite that Savior, to ask for a personal relationship, and to then live a life that shows gratitude for the gift he's given. A life of joy that honors his name. 